Welcome to the Social X Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy and I'm joined across the iPad there with my mate Mim Fox. Hello, Mim. Hi, Liz. Hello, everyone. Um, again, I must say I admire the uh, dressing gown over the head. It's a lovely look. It'll come in one day, let me tell you. Thank you so much. It's the COVID fashion, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Mim, today's episode is such an interesting one. It's an episode, a recording that was done by Katie, our wonderful student, who interviewed an author and a community worker called Mark Isaacs. A funny little tale. She'd gone to his book launch and because of the, the, the nature of his storytelling and the story of Nauru and um, how Australia has sent detainees there, she stalked this man for about, I don't know, maybe three months on Facebook trying to entice him into an interview and she finally cracked it. So after all her hard work, I'm really pleased that we can um, share this interview with our listeners. Can I just put a plug in there, Liz, for social work students and the initiative and drive they show in actually doing their placement tasks and being all rounders (laughs) in everything they do. Katie has really proven that. Thank you, Katie, and I'm sure everyone else will be thanking you after they hear this episode. So just briefly, a little bit about Mark Isaacs. Um, He's not a social worker, um, but, you know, quite frankly, I think we we could definitely make him an honorary member after listening to the work that he was doing in Nauru in 2012 and 2013. He's an amazing storyteller and he's also written a book which I I bought um, after listening to this interview. It's called The Undesirables Inside Nauru and if you like these stories that we're going to share with you I would suggest you also buy the book and we'll put the link up on our website because he goes into a lot more detail about the stories of the amazing people that he worked with and became friends with in his time in Nauru. Um, I also wanted just to mention um, that, that the stories that he tells are very traumatic in nature uh, and so we wanted just to kind of flag that as a warning. Um, And just to actually be a bit more specific, Liz, so that people are aware, there are suicide attempts spoken about in detail. So if that is going to be a trigger for you, we'd recommend that this isn't the episode that you tune on to and jump to the next one, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mim. Mim, did you want to say anything about, about the interview before we listen to it? Yeah, I think um, because he's not a social worker, often we can assume that there's nothing that we can learn or limited things that we can learn from the stories that our colleagues actually undertake. But I I want to really point out that this is an amazing story um, and it actually is a story that's embedded in social work values and also levels of social work practice. So uh, I want to really highlight for everyone that this is a story about social justice and we're going to come back after the story and talk a little bit more about where does social justice sit with social work practice when you're working in a space with such little hope and I think that's really a question that I'd like everyone just to kind of have in the back of their heads so that when we come back we can chat about that more. Great. How about we listen to it now? We'll come back. Sounds good. Okay, so my name is Mark Isaacs. Uh, I, we, in 2012, 
uh, I worked for the Salvation Army in the Nauru Regional Processing Center, which is also known as the Nauru Prison. Uh, and I worked as a mission worker. Uh, and so, you know, before I ever went to Nauru, um, I think the job I had before that was working for the state government, which was my first job out of uni. Uh, and so I had no qualifications, no experience uh, working as a social worker or working in this kind of environment with refugees before going to Nauru. Uh, and I actually, uh, the, the kind of way I found out about it, uh, I had been, uh, my interest in the kind of refugee world began way back in the beginning of 2012 when I first visited Villawood Detention Centre uh, and for the first time ever met people who were seeking asylum and stuck in the kind of immigration detention centre system. And so I had a kind of interest based on that experience of seeing the kind of harm caused to people in that environment. Uh, and then many months later, when Julia Gillard and the Labour government uh, decided to reopen Nauru as a form of deterrence to uh, essentially try and stop people coming to Australia by boat, uh, by boat, by punishing them. Uh, by locking them up in offshore detention centres and using that as a deterrence to stop others from coming. Uh, when they did reopen those camps, uh, and, and so the, the centre in Nauru, uh, there was a friend of mine contacted me and said, hey, there's a, there's a Facebook ad going around. Um, the Salvation Army are hiring people. You should apply because she knew that I was interested in this kind of work. Uh, and so I, I, on that, fa she gave me a number that was on the Facebook ad, believe it or not, and I called... Uh, the Salvation Army, uh, and they said, hello. And I said, oh, I'd like to go to Nauru. And they said, sure, when can you leave? Uh, and so there was a, a very, or was a very little uh, screening process with the Salvation Army. Uh, I think if there had been a type of screening process, I probably wouldn't have got the job. And I think the majority of people who were in those first deployments to Nauru wouldn't have got the job because my experience wasn't unique. There was an 18-year-old in that deployment with me. There was a young woman who was about 21 who uh, had been working at McDonald's. Uh, another woman who was older, probably middle-aged, uh, who was a Salvationist, uh, so part of the Salvation Army, who asked me on the plane over there, what is an asylum seeker? Uh, and so I was 24 at the time. Uh, and I think I went because I knew it would be a significant moment in Australian history and I went because I wanted to help people and, uh, and do what I could there but I was also intrigued as to what, what was actually going to go on there uh, we weren't given any real job descriptions or a mission brief about what would be happening over there or any kind of really kind of strong information on what to expect when we got there and I think that was because it was so new. I arrived a week or two after the camp was first opened uh, and there were very few people there and it, as far as we could tell it was a it was essentially kind of had this uh, atmosphere or, or vibe of a kind of disaster relief except this wasn't a natural disaster this was a man-made disaster. Uh, and, and so, you know, the kind of instructions we got were what to pack, uh, <laughs> you know, pack 20 pairs of socks because we're not sure if there'll be uh, proper cleaners there. And, and the, the, the first kind of mission we were sent on 
was a was we were supposed to be going there for a month. Uh, there was a phone interview, but it it, it wasn't very detailed. Uh, and uh, essentially, we were sent there without any idea of what we'd be doing or what would happen when we got there. Uh, we weren't given any kind of training whatsoever. Uh, and you know, now when I when I look at the work I've done since with uh, in community services with organisations like Settlement Services International in Sydney, where you're given, you know, um, mental health first aid training, first aid training, uh, what to do if someone wants to is having su uh, suicidal ideation, uh, working with vulnerable clients, uh, we weren't given any of that, and we weren't given any idea of who would be working with or and being told what their cultures would be like you know we were working with refugees from diverse backgrounds diverse language groups uh traumatized backgrounds uh these awful stories and we were being sent to a a, a place where people were going to be traumatized further and we were not given any information or training before that and and i was a 24 year old and so when we first stepped inside the detention center, we were told to go out and help the men, you know, be their friends, were our instructions from the Salvation Army um, uh, leaders at the time. Uh, and uh, we were just, you know, let out into this, this environment, um, into this prison to, to go out and help these guys uh, without very clear instructions of what to do on, and how to help. Uh, and so it became this really ad hoc response. And, and the first thing you notice about being inside the, the narrow prison is that um, it's a very small space. Uh, and it was at the, when I first arrived, they had about 100 men there. And there were no women or children when I was um, when I was first there. The physical conditions were, were quite tiring uh, or exhausting, I should say, in Nauru. It's a, a heat of about 40 degrees Celsius uh, when it rains, it's torrential downpour that would flood the camp. Uh, and it's kind of like relentless, relentless kind of weather. And it was essentially an environment which was ripe for uh, spreading of disease or um, or just conflict between different people. In Nauru, you were, you were sleeping six, eight, ten people to a tent uh, who you didn't know uh, and, you were, and you were left there. And, and, and the hardest part about this was when they arrived, these men said to us, what are we doing here? Why are we here? How long will we be here for? And so when they arrived in Nauru, they, we were the, the face of Australia for them. And they were asking us these questions, like, how long will we be here for? And I was that 24-year-old who'd just come from Australia who'd been given no training and no information whatsoever. And all we could say was, I, I don't know. And, and that was their life. In Nauru, they were brought to this island to to rot. They had nothing to do, nowhere to go, nowhere to be, and they had no idea of what would happen to them. And so in that kind of environment, very quickly we saw mental health issues arise. We started to see people harm themselves. Uh, we started to people see people lose uh, their mental health deteriorate and lose their minds. Uh, we saw people slash their wrists with razor blades, uh, put out cigarette butts on their arms, uh, ingest chemical liquids, uh, try to hang themselves or jump off the back of the, climb the fence of the detention centre, trying to uh, jump off the back of the detention centre into the pinnacled rocks, uh, try to jump off the scaffolding of buildings, all sorts of 
awful measures to express how badly they were dealing with this situation. And so without any guidance from any leadership, whether that be the Department of Immigration, the Wilson Security Guards, the, the health authorities, the IHMS, International Health and Medical Services, all the Salvation Army leadership, the, the young people that I worked with who were generally considered the inexperienced people came up with methods to help the men cope. And that was, we, it was very clear to us that that was our, our job was going to be to essentially just to stop people from trying to kill themselves and to distract them from the horrors of what was happening. And so some of my colleagues set up these English classes. Uh, I set up the recreations program. And so we started a cricket game, I believe, was the first uh, activity. Uh, and that was good because most of the, the people in the camp were from countries that play cricket. So, you know, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan. Um, all those guys were interested. Uh, and so that drew a lot of attention and... Um, an interest and so then we started uh, by requesting equipment through the Department of Immigration and the Salvation Army leadership we began to slowly get equipment which we could then create a rec program out of and that was a football tournament a soccer tournament and a uh, and a cricket tournament with the first two kind of big activities uh, and the the soccer, the soccer was was first, I think, because we we could do it within the camp, and then we slowly advocated for excursions, excursions out of the detention center, and that was the first time they were allowed out of the camp. Uh, on, since they were imprisoned on the island, and so we managed to get these different excursions, and there was a, it was a constant challenge to to make these things possible and and to keep them alive with when you had someone like an organization like the department of immigration and wilson security trying to restrict the freedom of the the men there uh, we managed to get these excursions first there were walks along the beach and then we managed to get things like um going down to the the basketball courts and doing uh activities on the basketball courts uh and outside of the camp and and then but eventually the, the big kind of there was all sorts of different activities we had, but the big one was uh, gaining permission to have them swim in the uh, boat harbour. Uh, and so there was a little kind of boat harbour, which was a protected area, which was uh, less dangerous than the other kind of beaches, which had dangerous currents. And so we, we, get, we got permission to have them swim in the boat harbour. Um, so those are the kind of activities I ran. Uh, and eventually, yeah, we got, we got an excursions down to the, the, the AFL over where we played, we set up a cricket tournament and, and, you know, the guys, um, who were really invested in it, um, would come and check with me every day. Like, what are the statistics? Who's got the most runs? Who's got the most wickets? Who's winning the competition? That kind of stuff. And so we keep all those stats to kind of keep people interested in the, in the activities. Um, so one of the, one of the kind of early stories, um, from Nauru was a was a, a, a small Iranian Kurdish man called Shahab, and his name has been changed to Shahab, and he, I call him Shahab in the book. But he was this this lovely uh, man with a, a thick moustache and a big nose, uh, and uh, and he was really small. And and his and his best friend in the camp was Farid, who we called the BFG, the Big Friendly Giant. So they were quite a funny kind of Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger pairing, and. Uh, Shahab was a uh, he didn't speak 
any English really, but he just always said thank you. And it was really kind of like this frustrating in a way because it was it embarrassed me because I didn't know why he kept saying thank you. Uh, but he had a really difficult, particularly difficult time in Nauru early on. Uh, and I commun- uh, one, one thing I should say, the way I communicated with the men was you essentially you had all these people and not not many of them spoke English very well. There were people who spoke English very well, but not not many. A lot of the guys um, had Eng- limited English language skills. And so we had cultural advisors in the Salvation Army who could speak their languages, but there were only a few for each language group. And they were probably the hardest worked people in the camp because they were always communicating with the men and always trying to translate for people. Um, and for, you know, Wilson security guards would be using them to translate and so would the, you know, the IHMS and all these different people. Um, and so I, I very quickly found people in the language groups who spoke English, uh, who, who people who had attained there who spoke English well and befriended them and then had them help me translate. Uh, but uh, Shahab was, yeah, he, he didn't speak great English, um, but he was a very lovely man. And, and the person who spoke Farsi in our camp was a man called Martin, who's a very dear friend of mine and I've known for a very long time since the Nauru thing. I've, I see him quite often. And he would often be the one translating for us. But Shahab had a very difficult time, um, particularly when when he was in Nauru. Uh, his wife and family didn't believe that he'd been detained there. They thought because Australia was this freedom country where you went for, you know, valued human rights and all these types of um, ideals, they didn't believe that he would have been sent to this detention centre and they thought he'd kind of run off with... Um, uh, a woman or something and so she left him while he was there and he he lost hope very quickly uh and so there's a number of stories of of shahab but i, I remember one of the first times i'd ever seen a man attempt suicide not not firsthand but i was coming out up to the camp one day and uh i remember it rain it was raining and uh, and i walked past a ambulance and shahab was in the back and he had attempted to hang himself from his tent and so i went in there to comfort his friends or you know i was also quite upset uh and it was essentially when i went to see his friends i was i was, it was i was told that it was my fault that he had attempted suicide because i hadn't done enough for him uh, and i didn't think of them as attacking me I thought it was more of a because I was the you know us workers were the face of Australia it was more of an attack on Australians that we hadn't done enough for him uh and I I used to I guess when I first started there I considered these people as my friends but there it was a very clear line that although we were friendly they weren't my friends we we were jailing them and these people were being kept in jail and while I could leave to be upset about Shahab's suicide attempt, these people had to stay in the camp where everyone was suffering and where people were attempting suicide. And that was a really dark moment for me because I had to, I left them behind to at the end of my shift that day and they were stuck in that place. And so Shahab eventually was transferred to Australia to a mental health unit. Uh, and then he eventually uh, elected to and I say this in inverted commas, voluntarily return home to Iran because he was so traumatized by what had happened to him. 
And we don't know what happened to him when he returned to Iran, if he's alive even. Um, and so that's what our detention centre system does to people and that's what Nauru does to people. It destroys them. Uh, another man was Pesman. He was another Iranian man. Uh, he was an extremely uh, intelligent, university-educated university man. Um, he was around about my age, maybe four or five years older at the time. And he was another guy that was, uh, I mean, on a day-to-day -day level, you, how, do I, how do I describe Pez? He, we spoke often. We would, I'd see him all the time. We'd talk about our past lives, uh, what he hoped for when, if he ever got out of Nauru. Um, and he eventually got to a point where he, um, I'd see him all the time and I, I, and I would talk to him every day because I worked there for months and months on end. And he, one day during, in the midst of a, of a, a kind of uprising in the camp when there was some unrest, he tried to hang himself in the, the old laundry at the back of the camp that had kind of was now dilapidated. Uh, and when I visited him afterwards, he was returned to the camp again. This is, you know, this is one of the horrors of this place is people attempt suicide and then are sent back to the environment which pushed them to that um, decision. And so he, I went to visit him in his, and he was on his stretch bed as well, and he had rope burns around his neck. Um, uh, and I, I said that I was worried about him, and he said, don't remark, I don't have anything to live for, but I don't have anything to die for either. Um, and so the kind of effect of Nauru is, or the point of Nauru is that, um, you know, when you come to a place like Australia by boat, when you travel halfway across the world, spend huge amounts of money, escape persecution, risk your life to get on a boat. And the, the chances of getting to Australia and of being offered a new life and a chance to bring your family here are slim to none. And it's, it's a hopeful mission, you know, you, that's what drives people. And uh, what Nauru does is try to extinguish that hope uh, and tell people that you should return home and you should tell your loved ones not to come to Australia. Uh, and the only thing that stops, you know, the only thing that holds people in that place is the hope that they can get to Australia. And if that hope gets extinguished, then they only have a few options. They have an option to stay there forever or potentially forever because they don't know what will happen to them. They have the option to return to the persecution that they fled from in the first place or they have the option to attempt to take their own lives. Uh, those are the only three options they have uh, or they had at the time I was there. And so that's what we were seeing. Um, and so that, that, that was the reality of Nauru for me. And, and the challenges as a, as a worker was you would raise your concerns with the authorities uh, and it would go up the chain of command and then nothing would be done. Uh, and, you know, very quickly you realise that was the whole point. There was nothing to be done because no one cared that people were trying to kill themselves in Nauru. And the news emerged. And we, well, we thought, and w when I was there, the... the what was happening in Nauru was was kind of obscured from the from the the public's view, the Australian public's view. Um, we were given contracts or made to sign contracts and deeds of confidentiality that said 
and this is all work, all the workers on the island were made to sign deeds of confidentiality and contracts that said you cannot talk to anyone about anything for all time. You know, we were told we can't even email our loved ones um, what we were eating for dinner in Nauru. Um, that's the kind of level of secrecy that was expected. And, and we were told that if we did, the government would be searching our emails and uh, messages to to see if we'd, you know, leaked the information and then we'd be fired or prosecuted even. Uh, and so there was this people, there was this demand for silence and demand for secrecy, which, um, which, which made it extremely difficult for workers to cope with what they were seeing because you were essentially not even supposed to be able to tell your loved ones what was happening. Um, and so you relied upon the people around you um, to talk about these things with. And then you also, you were stuck in this environment like Nauru, which is com- completely claustrophobic. You're on a tiny little island and it was very restrictive. And so the mental health of the Australian workers there suffered uh uh, and and then also you know you just while you're on island you just hope that people in Australia would find out what was happening and when people weren't finding out it was kind of left to us to try and essentially be the ones that communicated what was happening because the Salvation Army weren't saying anything they were silent in their in the abuse uh, and the, the Department of Immigration was clearly lying through their teeth about what was happening. Uh, as were the ministers for immigration over the, over the years. Uh, and so that's why it kind of fell on our shoulders as workers to, to blow the whistle. And we hope that once people found out what was happening, then Australians would be so horrified at the treatment of these people and so shocked about what was happening to them that they would have to act and we would close them down. And, then, and so we spoke out and sadly, the Australian people weren't horrified or not enough of the Australian people were, were horrified and the conditions have become worse or became worse uh, and they sent women and children to Nauru and women were raped on Nauru and then returned to the imprisonment where they were raped. The, the children um, developed withdrawal symptom where they stopped engaging with the world and and essentially became kind of comatose with, with depression and... Uh, wetting the beds and and complete a complete disconnect with the world and reality and you're talking young young children my father david isaacs was there as a specialist pediatrician and he treated i think the child was as young as seven or eight who had attempted suicide Uh, and he'd never seen anything as horrific as that and he's worked in countries all over the world and yet nothing has changed for the better or very little has changed for the better Uh, and in fact Ministers like Peter Dutton were advocating for worse treatment and harsher treatment of these people. Uh, and so it's been a very difficult path to see. And at some points I've disconnected completely because of the the work was so exhausting trying to advocate and not seeing enough change for the better. Um, but the upside is there's been a huge amount of advocates and, and people with compassion in Australia who have been working for change and who have taken up the mantle and worked where others have left off um uh, and so that's been a wonderful side effect of being in narrows is meeting all of the wonderful refugees who have been working so hard to make a life for themselves here and, and all the people who've been assisting them um and i'm still in contact with a lot of the guys i worked with in Nauru. um some of them are very dear friends of mine i'm going to the wedding of one one of the guys as a, as a groomsman which is a huge honor uh, uh i've had 
really positive stories of people doing really well when they get here and showing us why they should be here long term. You know, people who've found work, pay tax, uh, support families and communities. Uh, and then I've got these awfully tragic stories of people who've really crumbled because of what happened to them in Nauru. Um, people who've been here nine years and still haven't had the Department of Immigration interview them for a protection visa. They've been here nine years. Uh, I've had people who've been in detention for 10 years. Uh, I've met people who've been in detention for 10 years um, who the government just refused to release and refused to give any information about why they weren't released. And uh, So I think my overall experiences of the Australian Immigration Detention Centre system is one of trauma and horror. Um, uh, thanks to what our government is doing to these people. Liz, I have to confess to you that listening to this story, I just find it utterly shameful. And I'm conscious that uh, we usually anonymise our stories on this podcast uh, because we're trying to protect our practitioners and, our, and the clients that we work with. But... In this story, we purposefully haven't, and some of our listeners may have thought, why are they naming and shaming politicians and uh, non-government organisations? But it was really important to do that, I think, Liz, because it is so incredibly shameful, mm. this story. Mm. Oh, look, I feel, I, I feel personally shamed because, like, whilst I knew about Nauru and, like Mark mentions in the uh, episode... There were the Nauru files that came out as a result of, you know, when when children were um, uh, being taken off the island because they had the withdrawal syndrome. They were so depressed that they were virtually catatonic. And so there was a whole lot of media, maybe one, two years ago. And so I was aware of that, but I had no idea about the, the detail of what was going on in Nauru and... I thank Mark, but I also feel, like you say, absolutely ashamed of my country and, and what we have done to these asylum seekers. That's right. That's right. And just that culture of silence that Mark talks about that existed on Nauru, and that's existed throughout the country. I mean, there was a period of time where this was in the media all the time, but it's just disappeared and become invisible again. And I'm my fear with COVID-19, watching countries around the world close borders through this pandemic, is isn't this now a rationale to keep them closed? Oh, for sure. And those people who are the most vulnerable are the ones who are going to be caught in that. I couldn't it agree really with you more. really concerns me. Couldn't agree with you more, Mim. And I think, I think the fact that it's uh, Nauru is an island off from Australia... Uh, also keeps it very invisible um, and it, it, it helps detach us from our responsibility to those people who have tried to seek asylum in our country. I also think with the recession coming our way, there will probably be you know, a lot more focus on national interests and, and unemployment and getting people back into work. I, I, I'm really fearful like you that, that this will be another reason to kind of you know, shorthand our way out of taking any responsibility for these, for these people. Um, what I, what I will say, though, to, to especially to Australians, social workers who are listening to this, there is a great 
um, drama on ABC at the moment called Stateless, and it it's a it's a fantastic series that looks at what can happen in uh, detention centres, and it's riveting drama. So, um, it, the, in some way, there's that there is still some light being shone on. Um, Australia's irresponsibility around, um, you know, asylum seekers and how we treat them. Yeah, and I think that's great. Just thinking through that idea of responsibility a bit more, Liz, in this uh, story, there were levels of uh, irresponsibility, I would say, or absence of responsibility that were taken. One of the big key areas being that young people were sent into this situation with no training whatsoever, no qualifications and no training, and then no support once they were there and encouraged, if anything, to not have a reflective space, to not have a discourse or a debate um, and criticise what was around them. So given that, that we are coming from a social work perspective and have a social work lens on issues like this, I feel quite comforted in the fact that reflection and supervision and debriefing is so fundamental in our profession. Um, look, absolutely. Can I just st- take one step back to your that that earlier point, Mim? And I don't think there was any coincidence that that people without any um, professional training in this area were sent. Um, you know, go and make friends. I think was one of the things that that Mark had had. Uh, said that he was told by the organisation. Um, no training, like you say. Maybe some... I think there was something about how many pairs of socks that one should pack. But, yeah, I don't think there was... I think if... if uh, I can't imagine that if you sent a whole bunch of social workers over there, whilst there would have been equally the, the traumatisation that went on for Mark and, and his colleagues, I think there would have been some preparation already laid down through our training and our uh, skills and knowledge base that might have had, um, you know, maybe a, a different story, especially in relation to that boundary issue that Mark Mark was was taken by surprise with when do you remember he's talking about his 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 friend Farad had attempted to kill himself. Mark goes to see the detainees who shared the tent with Farad, and they were angry at him. And I think he made that comment that that's when he realised that he was fundamentally different to these people that he had thought were his friends. I I honestly don't think that a social worker would have thought that from the outset. I think it would have been pretty clear that there is a fundamental difference between ourselves and our clients. Whether or not it would have have protected them in terms of their, um, you know, their emotional reaction to what had happened, but I think that 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 knowledge would have been there from the outset. It's that implicit recognition of privilege, though, isn't it, that you can always walk away and you can always leave but these people can't. This is their lives. And I think it's the same lens that we put on any work that we do with vulnerable people, that there is a position of privilege that we are in when we walk into a vulnerable family, one-on-one situation, community setting, whatever it is, we have the privilege of walking away and they don't. Um, absolutely, Mim. And I, and I think the other thing in relation to um, the being a worker at Nauru, 
Um, remember a couple of episodes ago we were talking about the shared trauma reality and I think again this highlights the fact that these workers would have been traumatised through their work uh, with the detainees and being wit- witnesses to quite um, horrific self-harm and suicidality uh, and not to mention that when the children and the women came to Nauru there would have been you know sexual assaults that have been that I think he he um, intimated were, were going on so what I wanted to also say about the shared traumatic reality is that it, I think it's it's a concept that I would suggest our listeners familiarize themselves with there's a lot of work that's being done in that area now. And I also wanted to alert them to the work of Dr. Carol Tassoni um, as a starting point to, to, to understand this, this more. And if you like, on episode 91 of the Social Work podcast, that's an American podcast, they'll hear a great interview with her. Um, and, I, and I think it's, again, another way of looking after yourself in the space of social work when you're working in, in areas with clients who are traumatised. Traumatized. Um, and also in the context of working in disaster or even in certain clinical areas like accident emergency, intensive care, you know, women's refuges. I think it would be wonderful for you to do some more reading and understanding about this concept. I think that's really that's a really good point, Liz, that actually we often forget that we, are, we become part of the trauma when we're involved in working in these sorts of situations. And I know we've, you and I have spoken about this in terms of working in acute care settings and emergency departments and crisis scenarios. And I think that's right. We often forget that we become part of the trauma and think about it as purely vicarious. And it's not actually the case, is it? No, no, not at all. Mim, did you want to talk a little bit about the whistleblowing aspect that Mark talks about? Yeah, I do, Liz. And I I actually loved that he brought up the concept of whistleblowing. Uh, Often in Australia, definitely, we think of whistleblowing and we go back to the unions and go back to... um, I often think of grainy films that I watched in my own social work education that were filmed in the late 70s, early 80s and never updated. And um, and it was always the idea that someone is speaking out against this large unknown bureaucracy, right? And as social workers, we often um, forget that that's actually one of the gifts that we have, the gifts of being a witness. Uh, we're often standing by watching people at different points in their lives and watching different bureaucracies and play or policies play out. And the role of witness is incredibly important. So the idea of them being a whistleblower, being able to stand up and point out what actually is wrong, is one of the areas that we can create change, I think, in a space that inherently has no hope. And when you listen to Mark's story, to me, I mean, there was a quote that um, one of the men said to him, I don't have anything to live for, but I don't have anything to die for either. And to me, that was just, that broke my heart because actually that is a description of a space without hope. It is so bleak. And when you're working in an environment like that and you are searching for how do you create change, we often talk about strength-based practice and looking to build hope in people. But how do you do that when there really is no hope there? What I loved about Mark talking about whistleblowing was that that was one of the ways that he found hope, right? And it was 
then devastating when he and his colleagues blew the whistle and Australia didn't listen over and over again. Uh, But the idea that one day we will listen and we will respond, I think, keeps the hope alive. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I think the other thing that he blows the whistle on is the charitable organisation, the Salvos, that that had the contract at that stage and the way in which they not only neglected the detainees but also the workers that they that they placed in Nauru and I think there was some reference to the fact that there's never been any acknowledgement of what um, the poor workers had to go through when they were working there um, and I think even pointed out that they'd been underpaid given that they had received such an enormous um, a, a amount of money to run Nauru uh, and I think again with the whistleblowing marks actually saying well, well yeah, what's happened to what where was that money actually being spent because sure as hell we weren't seeing it on the island and again I think you know there are some questions that we should continue to be asking about that I I think we have a professional obligation to ask the questions Liz I don't think it's just a matter of curiosity or being a well-minded citizen I think as social workers we have a professional obligation to not just witness but then act on what we witness yeah And how we do that is going to differ person to person and context to context and organisational practice and all the differences that we all work in. We know that social workers are split amongst such a wide variety of contexts and practice types. But I just think that whether we do it in a larger media style, whether we do it individually, whether we do it through advocacy groups, community outreach programs, whether we do it through research and highlighting people's stories, whether whether we do it through collective organisation and small groups, um, psychoeducation, I think we have a professional obligation to blow the whistle. And through podcasts which is why we really wanted to spend some time highlighting Mark's story and promoting his book. And um, I guess maybe we, we can, can start to wind up then, I think, Mim, because there's, there's so much in this episode for people to reflect on and I'm hoping that we can engage in conversations with our listeners um, off the podcast and via our, our social media sites Definitely, Liz. Did you want to say anything before we wind up? Yeah, yeah, I do. I want to really thank Katie for the work that she's done, not just on getting hounding Mark for this interview, but in all of the interviews that she's done while she's been on placement with us. Uh, But I'm really conscious as well, Liz, that talking about things and people that become invisible in different times and contexts. Uh, Our producers, Ben Joseph and Justin Stesch, have been doing a lot of work behind the scenes. This remote podcasting really has increased editing time for them and I'm sure anybody who is involved in podcasts would be aware that it does change what you're doing a little bit. And I want to say a big thank you to both of them for the work that they're doing on our podcast at the moment, Um, but also to let the listeners know how important they are in the process that we undertake here as well. Um, So you all can contact us on 
our Instagram and on our Twitter and go to socialworkstories.com and contact us through our website. The other thing I wanted to say is that we've launched a blog on our website and um, Liz Murphy has been fantastic in starting to write some of her thoughts down um, and we're going to be posting that on the blog soon as well. And so if even if uh, social workers out there are a bit scared or scared or hesitant to ring us up and tell us a story, then um, then you could even write something for us, and we'd be really love we'd love to put it up on our blog and engage with you in that way. So keep an eye on that, and um, we look forward to the next episode, Liz. We will tune in again in another fortnight's time. And I look forward to that. I look forward to seeing you. But Well, maybe you won't be under a dressing gown next time we record. Who knows? Well, the restrictions are easing up in Australia at the moment. And I know that's not the case around the world in the same ways. But um, restrictions are easing up. At the, so at some point we may even be able to be in the same room, Liz. That'd oh, be good. Oh, God, that could be dangerous. But anyway, let's, let's only hope. In more so. ways than one. <laughs> in more ways than one. Not just COVID-related. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. All the best. Take care. Bye. Bye.